This is the My Dark Path podcast. During World War II, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill visited his allies at the White House, engaging in intense war discussions with President Roosevelt. After these long days, Churchill would retire to his bedroom for a relaxing soak in a hot bath, often accompanied by his signature cigar. One evening, as he emerged from the bath, he was taken aback to find a transparent form leaning on the mantelpiece in his bedroom. The figure turned out to be none other than President Abraham Lincoln, seemingly deep in thought and oblivious to the presence of the naked head of state in the room. Although surprised, Churchill maintained his wit and greeted the apparition, saying, quote, Mr. President, you seem to have me at a disadvantage, end quote. Lincoln's ghost offered a smile before vanishing, and Churchill spent the rest of the night in a bedroom across the hall. Now, given the historical significance and the tragedies surrounding his life and death, it is no surprise that Lincoln may be the most famous ghost in Washington, D.C. He lived in the city during tumultuous times and experienced personal losses while in office. His wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, was very interested in spiritualism, a movement encouraging communication with spirits. Her interest was stimulated in part by the deaths of three of her four children— Two died very young. Eddie Lincoln, her second son, passed away on February 1st, 1850. He was only four years old at the time. Willie Lincoln, the third son of the Lincolns, expired on February 20th, 1862. He was just 11 years old. As a part of her exploration of spiritualism, Mary attended several seances, both in the White House and elsewhere, seeking to communicate with her deceased sons. She believed that she was able to receive messages from Willie through mediums. Some reports also suggest that Abraham Lincoln attended a few of these seances, though he was more skeptical of the practices. I came across this story about Lincoln's ghost when I was researching the episode about the Blackbird of Chernobyl, which recounted the history of the nuclear accident in Chernobyl, Ukraine, and the odd premonitions which occurred around the incident. You can listen to that episode on My Dark Path Plus on Patreon. The idea of ghosts in the White House is intriguing. In fact, it is the opening scene of my first novel, Seen by Moonlight, where President Roosevelt is visited by the Nazi leader Adolf Hitler. And if that idea is intriguing, you may want to check out the book on Amazon. The idea that spirits of the dead would continue to visit the place of that person's death whether maliciously or kindly, is a common element of most ghost stories. Tonight, once we finish the background on Lincoln's ghost, we'll visit Japan, where there have been mass sightings of ghosts, all tied to the massive tsunami and the loss of life the country experienced in 2011. Hi, I'm M.F. Thomas, and this is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. And so if you geek out over these subjects, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. See our videos on YouTube, visit MyDarkPath.com, or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also find the link to My Dark Path Plus on Patreon in the show notes or on MyDarkPath.com. 
Also, we're putting out new videos regularly on YouTube and experimenting with shorts there as well. So thank you, dear friends, for walking the dark paths of the world with me. I am so grateful for your support. Let's continue with episode 55, The Ghosts of the Tsunami. Part 1 The White House has a rich history of stories about Lincoln's ghost. Staff members reported hearing mysterious footsteps outside rooms associated with Lincoln, like the Lincoln bedroom. And even presidential pets have reacted strangely at times. President Harry Truman and his daughter Margaret claim to have heard Lincoln pacing at night. Other notable guests, like Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands, have also encountered Lincoln's ghosts during their visits. Lincoln's spectral presence is not limited to the White House. People have reported seeing his ghost in many locations in Washington, D.C., and numerous paranormal enthusiasts' online forums document these reported encounters, from locations like Ford's Theater, where visitors claim to hear echoes of a gunshot and see Lincoln in his box during performances, to 10th Street Northwest, where passersby occasionally hear the sounds of chaos from the night of the president's assassination. Lincoln's tall figure has allegedly been spotted at the Capitol on Pennsylvania Avenue and even at his memorial on the National Mall, which was built after his lifetime. But over the years, various White House residents, staff members, and visitors have reported encounters with Lincoln's ghost. Grace Coolidge, wife of President Calvin Coolidge, was among the first notable residents to claim seeing him. Eleanor Roosevelt, occupying Lincoln's former bedroom as her study, felt his presence when working late into the night. In more recent times, during President Ronald Reagan's tenure, the stories of Lincoln's ghost continued. The First Lady Nancy Reagan recounted instances of mysterious noises and missing objects attributed to the ghost. While some dismiss these sightings as mere folklore, they demonstrate Lincoln's enduring presence in the national consciousness. Today, Lincoln's ghost sightings are less frequent, and ghost stories have lost some of their significance in the national narrative. Nevertheless, stories and legends surrounding Lincoln's ghost endure as a part of D.C. folklore, captivating those who seek the thrill of the spooky and mysterious. The connection between ghosts and the locations of traumatic events is often attributed to the concept of residual energy or residual hauntings. Several theories attempt to explain this phenomenon. First, the idea of residual energy is that traumatic events such as battles, murders, accidents, or intense emotional experiences are believed to leave a strong imprint on the surrounding environment. And this residual energy is thought to be recorded in the fabric of the location that can be replayed or experienced by sensitive individuals leading to reports of ghostly apparitions or sounds associated with the traumatic event. The second idea is like that of residual energy, but the theory of emotional imprints is also used to describe why ghosts may appear. It's believed that intense emotions, especially negative ones like fear, anger, or sorrow, can create strong psychic imprints on a location. These imprints are thought to linger and manifest as ghostly occurrences, particularly when conditions are conducive to their activation, 
such as a specific time of day, certain weather conditions, or significant anniversaries related to a traumatic event. And finally, the theory of unfinished business or trapped souls is also used to describe why a location might be haunted. Some paranormal beliefs suggest that ghosts are the spirits of individuals who have experienced sudden or traumatic deaths, and for various reasons were unable to move on to the afterlife. They are believed to be bound to the location where the trauma occurred until their unresolved issues are addressed or until they find peace. The appearance of Lincoln's ghost might be explained by the emotional imprint theory. And as you'll see, the residual energy and trapped soul theories may be the reason why the areas affected by the 2011 Japanese tsunami continue to be haunted to this day. Part 2 On March 11, 2011, at 2.46 p.m., a magnitude 9.0 earthquake occurred, with its epicenter approximately at a depth of 19 miles beneath the western Pacific Ocean, 80 miles east of the Japanese city of Sendai. The seismic activity caused a significant displacement of the Pacific Plate, which in turn led to the generation of highly destructive tsunami waves. A wave that was measured around 33 feet tall hammered the coast and submerged parts of Sendai, including its airport and the surrounding countryside. According to some reports, a tsunami wave even reached as far as six miles inland. Other cities along the coast, including Fukushima and Chiba, were also hit hard by the waves. Then, as the waters receded, they carried with them a massive amount of debris. Thousands of people were also swept up in the flood. At first, reports of casualties following the tsunami indicated hundreds had died, with hundreds more missing. However, the numbers in both categories increased significantly over the following days as the magnitude of the devastation became apparent. But as the search for victims continued, the official count of those confirmed dead or missing ultimately reached over 19,300. The tsunami's destruction was followed by countless stories of survival. For example, one remarkable story is that of Hiromitsu Shinkawa, a 60-year-old man from Fukushima. Amid the chaos of the earthquake and tsunami, Shinkawa and his wife made the decision to evacuate their home. And while his wife reached safety, Shinkawa was unable to leave their home fast enough and was caught in the tidal wave that engulfed his house. As the massive wall of water rushed toward him, Shinkawa clambered onto the roof of his house, which was torn from its foundations by the force of the wave. Clinging to the wreckage, he was carried out to sea by the retreating flood waters. And for the next two days, he floated adrift on the remains of his rooftop, without food or fresh water, surrounded by a sea of debris and battling hypothermia in the cold winter water. In the immediate aftermath of the disaster, the Japanese government had deployed over 100,000 personnel in search and rescue operations, but the scale of the devastation made it difficult to locate and rescue survivors. Remarkably, despite being nearly 10 miles offshore, Shinkawa was spotted by a maritime self-defense force ship that was conducting a search and rescue operation. 
The crew was astonished to find a lone survivor amidst the vast expanse of debris. Shinkawa was plucked from the ocean, exhausted but alive, and taken to a hospital where he was treated for mild hypothermia and dehydration. And when he was rescued, he was reported to have said, quote, I thought today was the last day of my life, end quote. Another story of survival after the earthquake and tsunami came from the city of Ishinomaki, where one family experienced an astonishing reunion amidst the devastation. Jin, a 16-year-old teenager, and his grandmother, Sumi Abe, were at home when the earthquake struck. They initially tried to escape to higher ground, but the tsunami waves reached them before they could get away. Their house was engulfed by the water, and they found themselves trapped inside. And for the next four days, Jin and his grandmother were trapped in their kitchen, which had become a small pocket of air amidst the wreckage of their home. They had no food, no drinking water, and no way to call for help. The temperature dropped to near freezing at night, and they had to huddle together to stay warm. Jin later recounted that he kept talking to his grandmother to keep her spirits up and to keep himself from falling asleep, fearing that if he did, he might not wake again. Rescuers had been searching the area for days, but the destruction was so widespread that it was difficult to know where to look for survivors. On the fourth day, rescue workers from the Japanese Self-Defense Forces were searching the wreckage in Jin and Sumi's neighborhood. Jin heard them outside and managed to crawl through a small hole in the wreckage to alert them. He was weak and disoriented, but he was able to guide the rescuers back to where his grandmother was still trapped. Both Jin and Sumi were rescued and taken to a nearby hospital for treatment. They were severely dehydrated and suffering from hypothermia, but they were otherwise unharmed. Their survival was nothing short of miraculous. Jin's determination and resilience in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds were remarkable. Despite his own dire situation, he remained focused on keeping his grandmother alive and never gave up hope that they would be rescued. The third story of survival involves a couple on Anagawa who managed a miraculous escape just moments before the tsunami struck by making a split-second decision. Masayuki and Yuko lived in the coastal area of Sendai that was designated as a tsunami evacuation zone. After the earthquake hit, they knew they only had a short window of time to escape the impending tsunami. And aware of the risk, Masayuki and Yuko quickly made the decision to leave their home and head for higher ground. They got into their car and drove toward a nearby hill, joining a stream of other vehicles trying to escape the waves. The traffic was heavy and progress was slow. As they inched their way up the hill, they could see the water rising behind them, swallowing up the landscape and getting closer and closer to their car. And with the water rapidly approaching, they made the decision to abandon their car and continue on foot. They ran up the hill, joining other residents who were also fleeing for their lives. From the top of the hill, they watched in horror as the waves engulfed their car and swept away their home and neighborhood. Miraculously, Masayuki and Yuko survived the disaster, but like many others, they lost everything. Their home, their possessions, and their neighborhood were all destroyed. In the aftermath of the disaster, they were forced to start their lives anew 
grappling with the trauma of what they'd experienced and the loss of their community. Masayuki and Yuko's story is a testament to the importance of quick thinking and decision-making in the face of a disaster. Had they hesitated or chosen to stay in their home, they may not have survived. And their decision to leave their home, head for higher ground, and then abandon their car, despite the chaos and uncertainty, ultimately saved their lives. But for every story of survival around the tsunami, there were, sadly, hundreds of deaths. Part 3 The tragedy of Okawa Elementary School is one of the most heart-wrenching episodes of the 2011 tsunami. In the coastal city of Ishinomaki, the Okawa Elementary School is situated about four kilometers from the coast on a small hill. On that fateful day, there were 108 students and 11 teachers at the school. And when the earthquake struck at 2.46 p.m., the school building survived, in part due to Japanese strict building codes. However, the subsequent 30-foot-high tsunami swept away everything in its path. Now, the school had a tsunami evacuation plan, but it was tragically flawed. The designated evacuation site was a nearby hill, but the route to reach it required crossing a bridge, which was thought to be unsafe because of the earthquake. The teachers were therefore unsure of what to do and crucially wasted precious time deciding on an alternative course of action. For 45 minutes after the earthquake, the students and teachers remained at the school, waiting for instructions from the city's disaster prevention center. But the instructions never came. Finally, the teachers made the decision to evacuate to a nearby hill, but by this time it was too late. The tsunami struck, washing away 78 children and 10 teachers. Only a handful of students and one teacher survived. The incident was particularly tragic as other schools in the area had successfully evacuated their students to higher ground in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake. Today, the Okawa Elementary School site has been turned into a memorial. A single building has been left standing as a stark reminder of the tragedy, and a monument has been erected in honor of the victims. It's a somber reminder of the devastating power of natural disasters and the importance of being prepared for the worst. Another example of the tragic loss of life during the tsunami is Toshi Sasaki. She was an 87-year-old woman from Kesanuma, a coastal city that was one of the area's hardest hit by the disaster. She was born and raised in the area and had witnessed many changes in her lifetime, from the end of World War II to the rapid modernization of Japan. She'd lived a simple and modest life dedicated to her family and community. A widow for many years, she'd outlived her husband and many of her friends. But her children and grandchildren, who lived in other parts of Japan, visited her as often as they could. But she was mostly independent and took care of herself. And when the earthquake struck at 2.46 p.m., the tsunami warnings were issued almost immediately. Toshi, like many of her neighbors, was aware of the risk of tsunamis. The city had experienced them in the past and there were regular drills and evacuation plans in place. However, the speed and ferocity of the tsunami that day caught everyone off guard and there was very little time to react between the earthquake and the arrival of the first wave. 
Toshi's house was located near the coast, and she knew that she had to evacuate to higher ground as soon as possible. However, her advanced age made it difficult for her to move quickly. Toshi's last phone call to her daughter is a heartbreaking testament to the chaos and confusion of that day. After the earthquake struck, communication lines were severely disrupted, but Toshi managed to get through to her daughter. She told her daughter about the earthquake and that she planned to evacuate to higher ground. Likely, she tried to assure her daughter that everything would be okay, even though she was likely feeling frightened and terrified. Toshi must have been aware of the challenges she faced, but she would not have wanted her daughter to worry more than necessary. And her daughter likely, on the other hand, would have been frantic with worry. Living in another part of Japan, she would have been acutely aware of the tsunami warnings and the potential danger her mother was in. And it's likely that Toshi's daughter urged her to contact a neighbor or friend to help. Unfortunately, Toshi was unable to escape the tsunami in time, and that phone call became their final farewell. Now, thinking of this emotion, love, and heartbreak that spread across the country of Japan that day, it was repeated hundreds of thousands of times over the course of the disaster and the search for the missing that went on for weeks and months. And thinking of that, you might understand why this area is now one of the most haunted in the world. Part 4 Located 40 miles from Sendai, Reverend Kaneda presided over his Zen temple in the town of Kurihara. The temple was a legacy from his father. However, the aftermath of the tsunami presented challenges that he had not anticipated. The calamity was unparalleled in post-war Japan. The March 11th earthquake was beyond anything that he had ever felt. The temple's large wooden beams creaked under its intensity. Essential services like power, water, and telephones were disrupted for days. The residents of Kurihara, situated 30 miles from the shoreline, were less informed about the coastal situation than global TV audiences. But the magnitude of the tragedy became evident when families, initially in small numbers and then in droves, approached the Reverend's temple with deceased loved ones to inter. While the full extent of the casualties took time to unfold, it was quickly obvious that thousands had perished. Within a month, Reverend Canetta had conducted funeral services for 200 souls, and more heart-wrenching than the sheer numbers were the grief-stricken faces of the surviving relatives. As documented in the book Ghosts of the Tsunami, Death and Life in Japan's Disaster Zone, the writer Richard Lloyd Perry captured Kaneda's words, saying, They cry. There was no emotion at all. The loss was so profound and death had come so suddenly. They understood the facts of their situation individually, that they had lost their homes, lost their livelihoods, and lost their families. They understood each piece, but they couldn't see it as a whole. And they couldn't understand what they should do, or sometimes even where they were. I really couldn't talk to them, to be honest. All I could do was stay with them and read the sutras and conduct the ceremonies. That was the thing I could do. A few months after the burial services, he and a cohort of fellow priests began touring the coastline, setting up an initiative to provide meals and opportunities for conversations. This informal setting, offering a warm cup of tea and conversation, drew people to the temples and community centers, 
Many of the attendees resided in temporary shelters, stark prefab huts that were cold in the winter and stifling in the summer. But these were a last resort for those with limited means. The priests always provided a listening ear and always being careful not to probe too deeply. Kaneta continued, People don't like to cry. They see it as selfish. Among those who are living in the temporary homes, there's hardly anyone who has not lost a member of their family. Everyone's in the same boat, so they don't like to seem self-indulgent. But when they start talking and when you listen to them and sense their gritted teeth and their suffering, all the suffering they can't and won't express, in time the tears come and they flow without end. Hesitantly and with initial reservations, but gradually with more confidence, survivors would share their tales of the wave's terror, their heartache from their losses, and the anxiety about the days ahead. Alongside these stories were mentions of paranormal encounters. People recounted seeing spectral figures, strangers, familiar faces, and departed loved ones. Stories of hauntings emerged from homes, workplaces, public areas, beaches, and devastated towns. These ghostly experiences varied from unsettling dreams and sensations of discomfort to more alarming incidents. For example, one young man felt an oppressive weight on his chest during sleep as though an entity was sitting atop him. A young girl described a daunting presence that lingered in her home. Another man shared his dread of rainy days, tormented by the visions of deceased eyes gazing at him from water puddles. In Tagajou, mysterious distress calls came into a fire station from locals ravaged by the tsunami. Although these areas lacked any intact infrastructure, the firefighters dutifully answered. But venturing into these remnants of the city, they prayed for the departed, and remarkably, the enigmatic calls ceased. In a makeshift settlement on Onagawa, residents recounted an elderly neighbor who seemingly dropped by their provisional homes, taking a seat and tea, much to their surprise. No one had the courage to inform her of her demise, but the cushion she occupied would always be damp with seawater after her visits. Tales of this nature emanated from various parts of the affected region. Religious leaders from Christian, Shinto, and Buddhist backgrounds frequently found themselves summoned to appease restless souls. A Buddhist monk even penned an article addressing the ghost conundrum. Scholars at Tohoku University embarked on an endeavor to document these stories, and in Kyoto, the subject was a topic of discussion at an academic conference. In a final thought, Kaneda said, Religious people all argue about whether these are really the spirits of the dead. I don't get into it, because what matters is that people are seeing them, and in these circumstances, after this disaster, it is perfectly natural. So many died, and all at once, at home, at work, at school, the wave came in and they were gone. The dead had no time to prepare themselves. The people left behind had no time to say goodbye. Those who lost their families and those who died, they have strong feelings of attachment. The dead are attached to the living and those who have lost them are attached to the dead. It's inevitable that there are ghosts. Part 5 The coastal city of Ishinomaki, which I've described several times in this episode, is known as a center for commercial fishing. 
Entire districts in the area, including the Mini Mihama district, were completely destroyed. In total, more than 29,000 residents of the area lost their homes. That's almost 20% of its population in 2010. And three years after the tsunami, there were still over 400 residents of Ishinomaki unaccounted for. And over the past decade, the city has been slowly rebuilding, including the removal of over 4 million tons of debris that have been taken from the city while seawalls, roads, and bridges have been rebuilt. And amid all of this uncertainty, all of this rebuilding, taxi drivers started to encounter ghosts as early as the spring of 2011. Now, if you've ever been to Japan, you'll likely have a fond memory of any taxi ride you took. The first motorized taxi in Japan in 1912 was a Ford Model T that was imported and used by the Tokyo Motor Vehicle Company. Prior to this use of a motorized taxi, rickshaws were the main mode of personal transportation in the country. But unlike taxis in other countries today, taxi drivers in Japan are known for its high level of professionalism and courtesy. Drivers wear white gloves and keep their cars spotlessly clean, even when the car may be a decade or more old. Most taxis, and certainly every Japanese taxi I've ever ridden in, have automatic doors that open and close without the rider having to touch the handle. Taxi drivers are required to pass several tests, and to become an independent taxi driver, you have to have 10 years of driving experience, a bank balance of a million yen or more, and no accidents or traffic tickets. And so, you see, Japanese taxi drivers are a very stable population, not driven to flights of fancy or perhaps unusual speculation. And their highly personal interactions with dozens of people a day make them, perhaps, a very reliable source for observing a surge in ghostly sightings after the tsunami. One of the earliest incidents involving a taxi driver and rider involved a young woman who hailed a cab near a public transportation station. She was wearing a heavy winter coat, despite the fact that the weather was balmy and warm. And if you recall, the tsunami occurred in March when the highs are only 47 degrees Fahrenheit and the lows average just below freezing in that area. The woman reportedly asked the driver, can you take me to Minimihama, please? The driver responded, there's nothing at Minimihama anymore. And after a few moments of silence, the passenger spoke again. Have I died? She asked. When the driver turned around to look at the passenger, she was no longer there. Another taxi driver who was in his 40s told of an unexplainable occurrence. According to the driver, a man who looked to be in his 20s got into his taxi. And when the driver looked into the rearview mirror, his passenger was pointing toward the front. The driver repeatedly asked the man for his destination, and then, finally, the passenger replied, Hayoriyama, referring to a specific nearby mountain. The driver, following these instructions, would have navigated through the disrupted streets of Ishinomaki, periodically glimpsing the Kitami River, which empties into the ocean right by the city. And leaving the city, the road would have followed the gentle rise in the terrain, winding its way up the hill, and as the taxi would have pulled into the Kioriyama Park, the views of the city, the river, and the oceans would have been spectacular. Yet the view would have shown the extent of the massive destruction caused by the tsunami. And when the taxi arrived there, the driver turned around to speak to his fare, only to discover that the man had disappeared. 
Reports of ghosts became so routine that in 2016, Yuka Kudu, a sociology student at Tohoku Gaikuen University, decided to write her thesis about the phenomenon. She interviewed more than 100 taxi drivers in Ishinomaki, asking them whether they had experienced anything unusual in the aftermath of the earthquake and tsunami. And while many of the taxi drivers refused to speak to Kudo of her thesis, at least seven drivers recalled picking up passengers who later disappeared with the incidents beginning just months after the disaster. Another driver shared this story with Kudo. The driver picked up a passenger who'd asked to be taken to a residential address. They drove for some time, and when arriving at the address, the driver discovered that the house had been flattened by the disaster. The driver turned around to ask the passenger, are you sure this is the right place? But the rear seat was empty. The passenger was no longer there. Kudo felt that the taxi driver's stories were reliable as each driver had started their meter when they unknowingly picked up their spectral passengers. Japanese taxi drivers start the meter once the passenger gets in the car, and taxi drivers are liable for the fare, meaning the drivers had to cover the cost of the phantom fares. In another story, a taxi in the city of Sendai picked up a sad-faced man who asked to be taken to an address that no longer existed. Halfway through the journey, the driver looked into his mirror to see that the rear seat was now empty. He drove on anyway, and stopping in front of the leveled foundations of the destroyed house of the address he'd been given, he politely opened the door to allow the invisible passenger out at his former home. According to Kudo, the taxi drivers didn't report feeling scared during these incidents. She said, quote, Young people feel strongly chagrined at their deaths when they cannot meet people they love. They want to convey their bitterness, and they may have chosen taxis, which are like private rooms, as a medium to do so, end quote. Generally, the drivers recalled picking up younger ghost passengers. Another driver shared the following story. When I was driving, I found a girl dressed for the middle of winter. When I asked her, what about your mother and father, the girl replied, I'm alone. I thought she was lost, so I asked her where her house was and wanted to take her home. But in an instant, she disappeared. It's true that we had a conversation. I held her hand and touched her, but she suddenly disappeared. While I want to believe, a skeptical mind might rationalize away these ghostly sightings. Since Yuka Kudo's thesis has gained media attention, some have suggested that the ghost sightings were grief hallucinations. Japanese psychiatrist Kizohara suggested that the ghost passengers were just signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. Hara said, quote, The places where people say they see ghosts are largely those areas completely swept away by the tsunami. We think phenomenon like ghost sightings are perhaps a mental projection of the terror and worries associated with those places, end quote. Now, there's no reason to argue with this perspective. For those of us who believe that our souls are immortal, we can certainly believe that when mortal lives are taken abruptly and prematurely, that those spirits might choose to linger in the areas where they passed away, perhaps seeking to reconnect with the people and country they loved. Most of us will never see the spirits of the dead, but I love the statement of one of the taxi drivers who had encountered a specter in his work. His words acknowledge that ghosts of the tsunami are a consequence of the terrible natural disaster of 2011. 
a consequence like the loss of thousands of lives or the destruction of the hallmarks of the advanced civilization in this part of Japan. This taxi driver, wearing his white gloves, caring for his pristine taxi, said, quote, if I encounter a ghost again, I will accept it as my passenger, end quote. Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host, and I produce this show with our engineer and creative director, Don Purdy. Extra narration was provided by Kevin Wetmore. Big thank yous to them and the entire My Dark Path team. Please take a moment and give My Dark Path a rating wherever you're listening. This really helps the show, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me. Until next time... Good night.